Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 9, Episode 10, Nanban Jidai. I would like to begin today's episode with a shout-out to Patreon supporter Bill, who asked me about what pre-existing conceptions, if any, a Japanese person might have had about Europe prior to direct contact. While it is true that the average Japanese person would have known about the existence of China and Korea, the educated among them would have also known about Ryukyu, Manchuria, Mongolia, and India. Europe, however, was half a world away, and Japan did not have a direct trade relationship with them prior to 1543. The occasional European trade goods may have come to Japan prior to direct contact through China, but it seems likely that they would have assumed said goods came from China, not from a distant continent two oceans away. The landing of a Portuguese trade ship on Tsukushima Island in 1543 was obviously not the first time that foreign traders had come to Japan in search of a profitable commercial exchange. While China and Korea had served as the primary official trading partners, the powers of southern Kyushu in particular sustained a long-term trading relationship with the Ryukyu Islands to their south. The medieval Japanese had an unflattering umbrella term they employed to describe those who traded in southern Kyushu, which included the Ryukyuan, southern Chinese, and the occasional odd ship from Southeast Asia, Nanban, a term which translates to southern barbarians. When the Portuguese arrived in 1543, they were incorporated into the term Nanban. Since they approached Japan from the south, it was naturally assumed that their homelands also lay in that direction. After the first contact in 1543, and especially after Sengoku armies began adopting firearms, the Portuguese trade would become so ubiquitous that the term Nanban came to refer almost exclusively to European traders. So who were these Nanban explorers and adventurers? A Portuguese trader named Antonio Mota is believed to be the first European to set foot on Japanese soil. In 1543, his ship, originally bound for Ningbo City in central eastern China, which lies due west of the Ryukyu Islands, was damaged in a storm. While his ship was being repaired in Tsukushima, he introduced himself to the local magnate as best he could manage, and gave a demonstration of the arquebus. Unfortunately, not much is known of Antonio Mota's later career, but the trader who brought another ship to Japan the following year was Fernão Mendes Pinto. The timeline of European contact with Japan is somewhat muddled because of Pinto's claim that he was the first European to visit the island nation. Historians today generally agree that Pinto was in Burma in 1543, however, and not as he claimed with Mota and the other traders who have a rightful claim to being the first. Pinto would become a pivotal figure in the burdening trade relations between Portugal and Japan, however, and our discussion of the Namban trade would not be complete if we excluded him, regardless of his personal self-aggrandizement. The principal import of those early phases of Namban trade was, without a doubt, guns. The daimyo of Kyushu recognized the value in these weapons, and soon their rivals across the nation caught gun fever as well. 
It is somewhat unfortunate that European traders came to Japan in the midst of the nationwide murder party of Sengoku Jidai because their initial impressions of the Japanese was that they just really passionately loved making war. In spite of achieving the capability for producing firearms locally, the demand for ready-made imported European matchlocks remained very high for much of the latter 1500s. A deep, abiding love for war was, thankfully, not the only observation which the Europeans made regarding the Japanese. Their strict observation of hierarchy and obsessive adherence to etiquette and protocol struck many European visitors as impressive. As relations between the two peoples became more routine, many Namban visitors accepted invitations for short-term lodgings with the daimyo, samurai, and other officials. They generally found their hosts very inquisitive about the outside world, but also very hospitable, polite, and emotionally guarded. The use of chopsticks for eating was a curiosity which many diarists made a note of, as was the largely vegetarian diet which most medieval Japanese people enjoyed. The Japanese also formed some impressions of this new kind of Namban visitor. They were somewhat put off by the European tendency to eat with one's hands rather than with chopsticks, and their general inability to read Japanese or Chinese script led some Japanese to conclude that these strange southern barbarians were illiterate. It's important to note that many of these Europeans whom the Japanese were interacting with were sailors, traders, and merchants. While the behavior of these newcomers may have led them to believe that Europeans had no formal hierarchy, couldn't read, and were too quick to share what was on their mind, I think it helps to recognize that these observations really only apply to the European adventurers in their midst. It's also worth noting that while many of these ships were commanded by Portuguese captains, their crews were usually primarily Southeast Asian and Chinese. While the Portuguese traders were happy to turn a profit exchanging firearms for exotic goods, especially fine Japanese silver, the government of Portugal was heavily vested in the spread of Catholicism. This was the age of the Jesuits, more properly called the Society of Jesus, whose mission was essentially to gain converts in foreign lands, build churches there, and expand the influence of Roman Catholicism to every corner of the globe. The Jesuit order was founded by Ignatius of Loyola, a Basque knight who, after the bones of one of his legs was shattered by a cannonball, shunned his militant livelihood in favor of a career as a priest, theologian, and missionary. While attending the University of Paris at the age of 38, he befriended a 23-year-old student and initially failed to convince him to join the priesthood. As their friendship continued, the young man, now 28, was finally persuaded in 1534 to take vows as a priest and looked upon Ignatius as a mentor. That young Navarrese man was named Xavier, but history remembers him as Francis Xavier. Throughout his career as a Jesuit priest, he would travel to India, China, and the Philippines throughout the 1540s. In 1547, he was approached by a young Japanese expatriate. This young man was named Anjiro, and he was a former samurai from the Shimazu domains who had committed murder and then fled from the islands as a fugitive. He seems to have been in an emotionally desperate state, seeking forgiveness for his misdeeds and searching for a greater purpose in life. He believed that Father Francis Xavier could give him both. 
The two became friends and talked at length over the next two years, with Xavier teaching him the essence of Christianity and Anjiro telling him all about his homeland where there were no Christians. In 1549, Father Xavier decided it was time to bring Christianity to Japan. In late July of that year, he and his Jesuit fellows were barred from entering the various ports at which they attempted to disembark. In mid-August, however, they finally found a port city willing to allow them to set foot on solid ground. That port city was Kagoshima, the primary trading city of the Shimazu clan. Shimazu Takahisa, the chieftain of the Shimazu at the time, welcomed Father Francis Xavier into his domains. After sharing several meals with the Catholic missionary, Shimazu Takahisa declared that, while he would not interfere with Xavier's evangelistic efforts, he also would not favor this new religion with buildings, funding, or any kind of official support. While this indifference is somewhat par for the course for modern missionaries, Xavier and his team hailed from nations whose politics were intertwined within their religious establishments in a way that was not terribly dissimilar to Japan. They were not looking for mere tolerance. They wanted active support. Leaving the Shimazu domain for more welcoming polities, they eventually found their way to Yamaguchi City in late 1550, and Xavier himself embarked for Kyoto. He had learned by this point that the sovereign of Japan resided in the capital. In seeking to win another nation into the Catholic Church's fold, his objective was to gain an audience with the Tenno and convince him to convert to Catholicism. Surely, once the emperor had accepted the church's authority, the rest of the nation would follow suit. The emperor was not in the habit of granting audiences to any random foreigner who arrived in the capital looking for attention, however, and Father Xavier was unable to see the Tenno after waiting for several months. He returned to Yamaguchi and was granted an audience with Ouchi Yoshitaka, the daimyo of the Ouchi domain, who gave the visiting missionaries permission to preach their gospel to his people. Hopefully your ears pricked up at the mention of Yamaguchi City in 1551. The Roman Catholic missionaries who visited the city that year and attempted to preach their gospel to the Japanese were fortunate to witness the thriving commercial and aesthetic city at its peak. In the fall of 1551, the Taineji Uprising occurred, which we discussed in Episode 8, Sengoku States Part 2. The rampant destruction by the Ouchi vassals who turned against Yoshitaka was witnessed and recorded by the visiting Jesuits who were harassed by the belligerent samurai who sacked the city, but generally most of the Europeans escaped unscathed. As to the results of these missionary efforts themselves, Father Xavier's initial efforts at converting the Japanese population were not as successful as he probably hoped. The medieval Japanese view of spirituality was that some spiritual entities were benevolent and others were malicious. Generally, they invoked the benevolent entities for protection, and if that failed, they made efforts to placate the malicious entities. Assembling an altar and offering an act of worship to a personification of smallpox, for example, was believed to keep the disease at bay. Xavier's missionaries, however, were preaching the existence of a single god who created both benevolent and malicious realities, but who they claimed was, in and of itself, a force for good. This was a contradiction in the minds of many Japanese people. The missionaries also preached against homosexuality, which was considered extremely normal in medieval Japan. Then there was the question of the ancestors. 
Like many peoples throughout East Asia, the Japanese venerated their ancestors partly from tradition and partly from a desire to display the Confucian value of filial piety. The Jesuit missionaries, when pressed, informed would-be converts that their ancestors were in hell because of their pagan beliefs. For most Japanese people, this idea was horrifying and repugnant. There was also the further confusion that inevitably arose because of shortcomings in translation. Anjiro is often given the lion's share of the blame for early mistranslations, but I'm not entirely convinced of his guilt. Japan had a long tradition of an expanding pantheon that was not threatened by new faiths, but, at least among the common people, eager to incorporate foreign deities. We briefly discussed the effort among Japan's emerging Buddhist clergy to syncretize the indigenous deities by identifying them as aspects of Buddhist arhats, bodhisattvas, and even various Buddhas of the Mahayana tradition a few seasons back. While many Western scholars paint such syncretism as an Eastern phenomenon, the Roman Empire made liberal use of syncretism, as did the Greeks who colonized much of the Mediterranean before them. When Germanic peoples were conquered by the Roman Empire, Odin became identified with Saturn and Thor with Zeus, for example. We have the Greek kingdom of Bactria who ruled in Central Asia to thank for the Buddhist tendency in the early years of the millennium of creating gigantic austere statues of Buddha and his many spiritual disciples and helpers. Such syncretism formed a bridge for converts to cross, something just unique enough to be novel while still having the comfort of vague familiarity. However, the Roman Catholic Church in the mid-1500s was in the midst of an existential crisis known as the Reformation. If you're looking for an in-depth breakdown of the causes and effects, trials and tribulations, triumphs and mistakes of the Reformation, you've come to the wrong podcast. For our purposes, it is enough to say that the true faithful among Roman Catholics experienced a newfound sense of paranoia and fear that at any moment the marginalized members of their own communities might identify with Martin Luther, John Calvin, or Ulrich Zwingli, and turn against them. The formation of the Jesuit order was part of a broader movement within the Roman Catholic Church called the Counter-Reformation, which was meant to reform the church from within and take the air from the sails of German, Swiss, and English leaders of the Reformation. My point in even broadly discussing the Reformation in the first place is that the Roman Catholic missionaries who came to Japan in the mid-1500s believed that they were in the midst of a great war against the heresies of men like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, and that it was their duty to spread the gospel to as many nations and peoples as possible before the extremely mission-minded Protestants spread their wicked heresies to these lands instead. Sorry for the digression, but I think keeping the Reformation in mind helps explain Francis Xavier's horror at what amounts to a simple misunderstanding. The word for God most often used when translating to Japanese in modern times is kami. However, kami is an extremely broad word that refers not only to powerful gods, but mischievous spirits, natural phenomena, ancestral souls, as well as the spirits said to inhabit mountains, trees, rocks, and even the sun. I can understand why Anjiro did not choose the word kami to refer to the benevolent, omnipotent god central to Christian belief. He chose instead to refer to the Christian god as Dainichi. 
For listeners who have not seen the 2016 Martin Scorsese film Silence or read the Shusaku Endo novel of the same name, Dainichi literally means Great Sun, but it is also used as the Japanese name for the Buddha Vairokana, a cosmic primordial Buddha venerated in Mahayana and Vajrayana sects. I am inclined to give Anjiro the benefit of the doubt in this scenario, and I don't think he was doing anything malicious. In fact, during the early days of Jesuit efforts to gain converts in Japan, they were happily welcomed in Shingon temples as Dainichi was an important deity in the Shingon school. The misunderstandings don't end with Dainichi. Before his journey to Japan, Father Francis Xavier returned to the Jesuit headquarters in Goa, India, and spent over a year setting affairs in order. After a few stops in Southeast Asia and China, they came to Japan and, when introducing themselves, indicated that they had embarked from India. Thus we have two critical early misunderstandings that fed one another. The Japanese believed that the missionaries came from India, birthplace of Buddhism, and they claimed to worship Dainichi, a Buddhist deity. When Father Xavier discovered that the Japanese believed erroneously that Roman Catholicism was a new school of Buddhism centered around the worship of Dainichi, he was understandably upset. Not wanting to be misrepresented or give the impression that such misrepresentation was a purposeful deception, he ordered his translators to never use Dainichi to refer to the Christian god. They were to use the transliterated term Deusu. When it became clear that he was bringing not yet another school of Buddhism to Japan, but an entirely new religion, the Shingon temples shut their doors to the missionaries and even lobbied their local officials to expel the heretic barbarians. While Francis Xavier himself departed from Japan in late 1551, he left behind a community of dedicated Jesuits who continued his work. Their progress was slow, and while the relative tumult of the Sengoku period often made their work difficult, it also presented certain advantages. If they had come to Japan during a time when the nation was relatively united under a central government, they may have been expelled outright by order of the emperor or shogun or even the Kyushu Tandai. The relative independence with which the various daimyo governed meant they no longer felt the need to ask any central government's permission regarding barbarian evangelists, and that if the missionaries were expelled from one daimyo's domain, they could just relocate to one of their neighbors along with the Japanese converts they had gained. In December of 1552, Father Francis Xavier contracted a terrible fever while waiting for permission to disembark from his boat in the harbor of Shangchuan Island, which is in the vicinity of modern-day Hong Kong. He never recovered from this sickness and died on the boat. He was later beatified by Pope Paul V and then canonized as a saint by Pope Gregory XV. He is still considered one of the patron saints of missionary work worldwide. The Jesuits in Japan did enjoy some successful conversions among the impoverished peasantry, but as time passed, they found greater acceptance among not only the burgeoning middle class, but the samurai and their daimyo overlords as well. Some daimyo converted to Roman Catholicism as a way of encouraging the lucrative non-bond trade which enriched their domains, but others were perfectly sincere in their conversions and would prove themselves willing to suffer rather than turn away from their new faith. Because of later events, 
It is difficult to be certain about the number of Christians in Japan during Sengoku, but I think more than 100,000 and less than 200,000 is probably a good ballpark estimate. The arrival and spread of Christianity is yet another facet of Sengoku Jidai, which would sometimes add extra complications to already delicately complex situations. We will discuss those situations as they arise. The success the Jesuits had in converting Japanese people attracted the Franciscan and Dominican orders to Japan as well. While some of these monks may have been drawn to Japan out of an earnest desire to spiritually nourish the pagan inhabitants, these missions were sponsored by the Kingdom of Spain in a bid to compete with Portuguese trade. The usual stories of those early missions to Japan often omit the larger purpose behind the church and state-sponsored expeditions. In fact, the so-called Age of Exploration of the 14 through 1600s was fueled not by some idyllic desire to go where no one had gone before, but was largely motivated by greed, imperial ambition, and church-sanctioned exploitation. In 1452, Pope Nicholas V received an urgent message from Eastern Roman Emperor Constantine XI requesting immediate aid against the Ottoman Turks, who had conquered much of the territory surrounding Constantinople and built a fortress on the European side of the Bosporus. Emperor Constantine XI rightfully feared that they might take the city itself. Relations between Rome and Constantinople had been strained for hundreds of years by this point, but many popes dreamed of being the one who finally welcomed Eastern Orthodox congregants back into the Roman fold. Pope Nicholas V responded to this message by issuing a papal bull, in this case a charter, to King Afonso V of Portugal. The relevant portion of the bull is as follows, quote, We grant you by these present documents, with our apostolic authority, full and free permission to invade, search out, capture and subjugate the Saracens and pagans and any other unbelievers and enemies of Christ, wherever they may be, as well as their kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property, and to reduce their persons into perpetual servitude. End quote. It is believed that Pope Nicholas V was trying to spur a crusade against the Ottomans, but if that was the case, then he failed miserably. The next year, 1453, Constantinople fell to an army led by Sultan Mehmet II, and the last direct vestiges of the Roman Empire were swept away. The Portuguese king, meanwhile, saw great potential in the text of the papal bull, which is named Dum Diversas, and proceeded to carry out its orders by invading Morocco and parts of Western Africa, seizing whatever gold and valuables they could find, and enslaving the Muslim and pagan populations. Subsequent popes reaffirmed the order through their own similar papal bulls, which also included global demarcations for the Spanish and Portuguese empires respectively. These official orders essentially gave permission for either faction to conquer any territory held by a non-Christian sovereign and to relegate to slavery any people within those domains who refused to convert. This policy was especially accelerated by Pope Alexander VI, who in 1493 issued a papal bull entitled Inter Cayetera, which justified the expansion of such eliminationist policies in the Americas. My point in bringing these things to light is to bring balance to the conversation about Japan's history with Christianity. 
while many of the Jesuits, Franciscans, and Dominicans who came to Japan looking to win converts were motivated by compassion, they were not acting only within their own capacity. They were agents of an expansionist foreign power. Father Francis Xavier himself was officially acting in his capacity as a direct representative of the King of Portugal. When the Japanese government's reaction against Christianity arrived, and it will arrive a few seasons from now, we should keep in mind that a general policy of religious tolerance was still centuries away for both Japan and European polities. I shudder to think what would have happened if a Japanese person came to Portugal, or really any other nation in Western Europe during the 1500s, attempting to spread Buddhism or erect shrines to European kami. Since their arrival in 1549, the Jesuits who came to do mission work in Japan had about 45 years in which they were relatively free to curry favor with power-brokering daimyo, build churches, and spread the faith. While they were occasionally harassed, generally there was no persecution against them, and it won't be until next season that the most powerful man in the nation decides on a policy of expulsion forced apostatization, and abject cruelty toward those Christians who refuse to give up their faith. I want to make it very clear that I am not defending these brutal actions, but I think it's worth considering what kind of treatment may have come to the Japanese at the hands of the Portuguese or Spanish conquistadors if they had decided to attempt to subjugate the islands of Japan in the name of God. For the moment, the Portuguese were the only Europeans trading with the Japanese, but that monopoly would not last forever. In a few seasons, the man who would found the next shogunate will find it convenient to grant sole foreign trade rights to a late-coming imperial competitor to the Portuguese and take steps toward keeping broad foreign influence out of Japan. Next time, however, we will discuss the concurrent developments in China during Japan's age of civil wars. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.